How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour. And today we are in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Peter warns us that false teaching never sleeps. Two words strike fear in the heart of every homeowner, home buyer, a realtor, uh, anyone involved in the housing market. Black mold. If you've heard those words and you don't experience, uh, all of a sudden your checkbook feels drained. It's an interesting dilemma that uh, has become sort of a trend. Uh, The misinformation about black mold is perhaps more rampant than the fear of it. Zygomycosta is the alleged culprit. And remediation companies will come into your home and they'll take a lot of your money. It's interesting, they don't call them uh, cleanup, it's called remediation. And it's, if you read them carefully, they try to remedy it. Um, the CDC is always fun to read. If you're ever bored, just go to the CDC site. It's like reading the IRS and their view of disease. It's just a joyful thing to do. The CDC basically is unalarmed, and they essentially say, unless you're sick, don't worry about it. Now, if you're in the home realty refinancing, rebuilding world, it's a much different approach. Um, One thing that most uh, experts agree on is that black mold is everywhere because spores are everywhere. There's no way to get rid of it because it exists all over us. It's on your clothes right now. I'm going to freak you out. Remember when you were a kid? Did you ever see those, those films about germs when you were kids in school? And it was like blue ink on your fingers. You ever see those things? They're so great because the kid comes in and he turns the doorknob. And he's got blue ink all over his hands. And then he touches his face and then he touches the girl. And she's got blue and they show how germs transmit. I think of black mold that way. It's everywhere. Right now it's in your hair follicles. It's under your fingernails right now. You just don't know it. Some of you OCD people feel like you're going to go wash your hands right now. Because the spores are essentially everywhere, what requires black mold to grow and become a problem is moisture, temperature, and the lack of light. And whether you're a remediation company or a realtor or someone in the housing industry, they would agree on that. Uh, and, And the advice is almost comical. You keep an eye and a nose out for black mold. You can smell mold, can't you? Most of us who have that. Any of you like me have the, the, the gift of, of olfactory sense? If Cindy opens the refrigerator door, I can be on the other side of the house and go, there's something bad in the refrigerator. And she goes, no, there's not. And we, anyone, am I the only person like that? I've got my mother's nose. If there's a smell, I, I can walk in, something's wrong. And I go to people's lake house, it's got mold in the basement. So you're to keep an eye out and a nose open for mold. 
there is a black mold in the church, and it's called false teaching. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And we traffic it in and out from what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, from our histories, what our friends say about things. And the, the lack of biblical theological baseline knowledge that continues to go reductionistic in the American church is alarming. But that doesn't cause me fear because all of us have the ability to read, to study, to learn, to spend time in God's Word. But black mold and false teaching are everywhere. Interesting. Because it's subtle... Because you can't always see it and smell it, uh, you have to keep an eye out for it, and you have to look to others to help you keep an eye out for it. Now, we live in a genteel, politically correct world. Cindy and I were at an event yesterday, and uh, it was down at the Country Music Hall of Fame Theater, and it was um, uh, this star, and a lovely woman, 71 years of age, telling her story, and uh, she had to throw a few little hooks in there about her views. And I was talking to uh, one of our friends here at the church who's also in the music and art industry. And we we're just comparing notes about it's an interesting culture that we live in. And when I, when I see how people form opinions, and as Christians, we want to be careful. Uh, just think through a list of, of terms, how language has changed. And let's just say the last decade, tolerance versus intolerance. Those words are flashpoints. Love versus hate. Oh, that's, that's hateful. That's not loving how we brandish these terms. Facts versus feelings. People run based on feeling, not on knowledge or factual information. Truth versus experience. And this, to me, has been a tectonic shift over time that it's how I feel about something. Cindy and I, as m many of you know, we have had small groups in our homes where we try to uh, mentor young married couples. And we've done this on and off for years, and it's been a delight. And uh, the last group we had several years ago uh, in this group, uh, this one person just sort of blurted out, I don't like all this Bible and theology stuff. I want to talk about how I feel. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a, a bad statement, or, a, or she wasn't wrong in saying that, but that was her view. I want to talk about how I feel. So language begins this shift, and of course, it's, it's an easy target, but when I was young, the, the issues were pro-abortion or pro-life, and the pro-abortion movement learned very quickly we can't use that language. We must be pro-choice, women's rights to choose. All I'm saying, these aren't terrible or wrong. I'm just trying to illustrate, language takes on meaning. And once we get meaning associated with these flashpoint terms, the Christian is left sort of like, well, how do I respond when someone says something that I really think is, is not just factually wrong or goofy or nutty, it might be heresy. So we're in this tension of we want to be nice and kind and loving because we're called intolerant and hateful and so forth and so on. So my question for you as we look at this passage this morning, which is a fascinating passage thinking about two centuries ago when Peter wrote this, it, when does cultural language become error? And how do we walk that fine line of being loving people who are kind, who are willing to have a discussion, not a fight, but at the same time understanding, wait, 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 can we define those terms? Can we define those terms? 
How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but so a lot of us have gotten organic. We want to eat organic, organically. And I go back to the little science and chemistry I had, and many of you in here could correct me if I'm wrong, but organic by technical definition means water-soluble versus inorganic, which is not soluble. Chemicals versus organic is a nomenclature that people have adopted wholesale. Can I tell you real kindly, it's nonsense. These so-called organics are chemicals as well. Look at the periodical chart sometime. Chemicals are chemicals. Now, what they mean by that takes on a language of its own, right? That's got chem. That's tox. You have toxins in your body. Yeah, that's why God gave you a set of, a set of kidneys and a liver. Next question. Everything you eat's got toxicity in it. I mean, unless you want to go eat grass, well, you're going to get toxic there too. So, moose hair or something. I don't know. So. What I'm trying to over-illustrate is language only has meaning what, the way it's used, okay? Language has meaning the way it's used. When we talk about false teaching, I don't want to sound like every, i got a hammer and everything's a nail, nor do you. But I do want to know what is a nail. And I do want to know when the hammer is truthful. Make sense? Let's take a look at First Peter, Second Peter chapter 2, and the first three verses today, let me read you what uh, D. Edmund Hebert writes as he summarizes this chapter. This is the first time Peter is going to mention false teachers, which is interesting. He writes, it is wholly devoted to the exposure and condemnation of false teaching. There is a natural progression of thought in three parts in the chapter. So what he's saying, this whole chapter is about false teaching, and he outlines three parts, and we're going to look at those in three successive messages. Number one, Peter draws a concise prophetic picture of false teachers and the worst type who will arise. Secondly, he establishes their fate. In other words, the future of false teachers is not good. And third, he gives a detailed and vivid description of these false teachers. So we're going we're gonna to understand that false, this is a prophetic versus false teaching environment. He's going to explain they have a doom that's sure and then he's going to explain that um, this is how you know who they are. So we're talking about a context we live in where language takes on meaning that we don't always know how to juggle. Peter in the first century is going to talk about a biblical theological lens, how you focus in on what is and isn't false teaching. And it's uncomfortable to read because the consequences of promoting false teaching is not, just, is not trivial. This isn't about PC or not PC. This is eternal and differentiation. Well, we're going to look at three points and two lessons. Would you read the passage with me from the screen, please? Let me ask you to stand. We'll read this together. Um, first Peter, Second Peter, chapter two, verses one to three. Read together with me. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in the greed, they will exploit you with their false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Thanks. You can return to your chair. Number one, false teaching 
old and nothing new. It's old and it's nothing new. Bit of a wordplay going on in the first verse. False prophets parallels false teachers. Those of you who like language and wordplay, pseudo-prophetes and pseudo-didaskalos. Pseudo, we all know the words, it's fake. Pseudo means false. Prophetes, a prophet, a false prophet. Pseudo-didaskalos. We think of didactic literature. All the word means is teaching. So we have false prophets compared and contrast against false teachers. The audience understood false prophets from of old. If you want to jot down a note, Deuteronomy 13, the first five verses, and then you could chase cross-references until you're dizzy about the consequences, the testing, the way God views false prophets. It is not a small thing. It's not like, a, oh, by the way, ignore them. Uh, their destiny is not good. Just as there were false prophets, Peter's saying, there's going to be false teachers among you. The black mold is always there. Nothing new. It shouldn't be a surprise. Back up, as Wayne reminded us a few weeks ago, Peter is a shepherd. Peter is an elder. He is lovingly, kindly trying to encourage his listeners, watch out for black mold. Watch out for false teaching. As I said, I don't want to overstate the case and be every nail and I got a hammer I want to understand how do I live in this context where it's wrong, it's false, and be a smart, growing, wise Christian. Um, Hebert, again, quotes a guy named Daniel Defoe. It is never long before the true work of God encounters the presence of satanic counterfeits. As Daniel Defoe observed, wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. Kind of goes back to count your blessings, name them one by one. Old ditties, but they're great. Wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. Peter gives insight on the character of these false teachers as they're secretive and in introducing these destructive heresies. Think of them as smugglers. If you've ever read any of the history of the God smugglers, of smuggling Bibles, smuggling drugs, uh, one of the uh, websites I follow, uh, Twitter accounts I follow is something called uh, Historic Pictures. And they have these great uh, derogatypes, tintypes, pictures from all sorts of different uh, storylines. And one the other day was a picture of a, a log truck that was used in LA to smuggle uh, alcohol during Prohibition. And they had put all the logs together and cut them out. So this section looked like logs that fit in perfectly. I thought, people are always creative, you know? When it comes to smuggling booze, we'll find a way to do it. <laughs> smuggling truth. Uh, smuggling deception. That's what they're doing, and they're seducing them. The word heresies in English is another Greek loan word. We've talked about this many times. I'll remind you, there are certain words in Greek that... English brought on board because we didn't have a one-to-one -one translation. Remember, we've talked about transliteration versus translation. A translation, we take the word mathetes, disciples. We take uh, uh, baptizo, baptism, has, there's no English equivalent. So we take a letter-for-letter -letter equivalency. That's transliteration. Heresies is a Greek word there was no English word for it. So we borrowed it from the Greek language and brought it into English, and we have this word heresy. It really means an opinion. If you just took the word out of the, remember algebra where you had the absolute bars and anything inside the equation was positive even if it was negative? I think of Greek words that way. They, they don't have a positive or negative meaning. It's until they're used. 
So heresy is one of those words. It just means an opinion. What do we know about opinions? They're just opinions. They're just opinions. So when you're in a small group, and if I've ever been there, you'll, you'll see me come out of my chair. Well, I think this means, I go, well, thank you for sharing your opinion. What does it mean? I call that pooling our ignorance. Let's read the passage and say, what does this mean to you? Uh, 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 stop, foul ball, out of here. No, what does it mean? Language is important. What the text says is important. Peter's saying they're going to introduce these false opinions. By the way, an opinion is a self-made conclusion. It's my opinion. I think, Cindy and I lived in the political realm for uh, 12 years up in D.C., Northern Virginia, and we grew to have a lovely relationship with people that think about policy. And uh, when you get beyond the, the noise of the news and you go back to who are the staff writers writing these things down that become legislation, that's the people you want to watch, not who's in the news flapping their gums. What are the people writing? And no one takes the time to read what they're writing, but that's how politics really is working. They're just opinions until they become what? Law. Now that it's a law, we enforce the law because we're a rule of law. The New Testament is God's word. I'm not looking for an opinion. I'm not looking for how I feel about it. I need to understand it, and that's why I'm a stickler for context. What did it mean in the time it was written? Not just try to apply it. to. It's, sometimes it's a round peg in a square hole. I need to understand what was going on in the context it was written, and then how do we understand, apply in our current structure. They're secretly introducing these self-made opinions. Uh, their destruction, Peter continues, will be swift. Five times in the little letter of 2 Peter, he likes this word destruction. And I'll point them out to you as we come. We have two in verse 1 here and then later in the text. Ed Bloom uh, writes, quoting some other authors, bringing swift destruction is not simply extinction of existence but an everlasting state of torment and death. Bloom continues, It will be swift because it will descend upon them suddenly at death or at the return of the Lord. Now, there's a moving trend in Christianity. Some of you who are readers know that there's no more hell. It's annihilation. A loving God would not send people to eternal torment. And that sounds really lovely, but it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible also does not teach that God sends people to hell. He's not capricious. We're all going to hell. God offers something called salvation to keep us from hell. You nor I are better. The ground at Calvary is what? Level. Nobody's better. No, I could be like that Christian. I'd be a better Christian. Nobody's better. Calvary's level. So what Peter is saying here is that this idea that's being introduced, uh, destruction's going to come, and it's going to be real and have eternal consequences because they have misled people, they've propagated falsehood, they've taken meaning and moved it into opinion, and they've subterfuge and brought it into the church, even denying the master. False teachers don't just confuse with heresy, but they deny the master. Interesting word choice by Peter. Only found ten times in the New Testament, interestingly. The way the word is used means someone who has supreme authority. Now, you're not going to hear false teachers that are going to say Jesus was wrong, right? I mean, we, think of a false teacher. I'm not going to name any names, but think of one that you that problem, that person here, she's probably a, 
They're probably a little goofy. They're probably a little off the reservation theologically. Are you going to say Jesus is not the only way? Jesus was wrong? Jesus made mistakes? They're not going to do that. What they're going to say is they're going to add to or take away what Christ has said or done. Well, Christ didn't mean this. What he meant was that's misrepresenting the master. That's false teaching. Black mold now has, has moisture and darkness and temperature making it able to grow. When they deny the master, when they divide the one with supreme authority, Peter makes an interesting and helpful distinction. He talks about believers who see Jesus as their master and those who are false teachers. In other words, a believer gladly says, Christ, you're my master. The false teacher gladly says, uh, my opinion means more than what Christ's teaching said. Bringing swift destruction on themselves, it's a reflexive verb. It's self-inflicted. You shot yourself in the foot. That was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. I think I've shared the story with you before. I worked as a mechanic for many years, and in one of the shops I worked in, a guy shot himself, and uh, he, he was from then on mocked endlessly by our mechanics. Mechanics are such encouraging people to work around. And um, it's such a great culture. And um, he, he, they called him quick draw from then on. <laughs> hey, quick draw, how you doing today? And uh, he would, in his wry sense of humor, stop and say, be careful, I've shot people for less. Uh, he had. Uh, self-inflicted gunshot wound, a self-inflicted heresy. This swift destruction is self-inflicted. Can't, God didn't send you there. It was self-inflicted. You made a series of choices, bringing swift destruction on themselves. The irony is they elevate their opinion, what I think, above God, who is the master, and their opinion is going to fall back down on them. You build this system up, your opinion, your theology, your false teaching is going to fall on top of you and crush you because you promoted it. Well, false teachers, old and nothing new. Secondly, false teachers are as popular as ever in the first century and today. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in greed, they will exploit you with false words. Some interesting weird marks of success and false teaching. Success Many follow because of their sensuality around false teaching. It's an interesting word choice for Peter, and it also explains there's nothing new. The word almost always has to do with immoral connotations. Um, today we think of our progress and, and liberation of our identity, the so-called gender politics, the way we've moved away from we can't say he and she anymore, Almost all of our Bible translations are jettisoning anything like brethren uh, and we're going brothers and sisters or people. They're cumbersome language because language is important and it takes on meaning. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just think it's an interesting trend that we're watching. 20 years ago, we didn't never talk about the, the, uh, when, when, when God says mankind, that that somehow put womankind second class. By the way, it's woman. Man is a stem word. Ish. Ish-ah, ish-ma-ish, the words are the same. Adam and Eve were, we call surnames, but they were made in God's image. It was always that way. But language is important. Culture changes. So it's still popular when you hold out this bait of false teaching that sensuality goes along with it. 
in the first century, we often think of our, our craziness of our culture with you know, all the gender politics and you know, all the trans discussions, LGBTQI, and I pejoratively say fill in the blank for the next letter that's forthcoming. We're, we're a confusing culture, but we've got to be nice because we're Christians and we can't be hateful or intolerant. And see, we're always in this double bind. Can you have a conversation without getting mad? Can you say, that's interesting, that language took on meaning? And how do we lovingly engage people that have different opinions when they certainly don't want to hear mine? The broad scope of immorality was just as rampant in the first century. Rome was just as, you know, as immoral and essentially driven as America. They just didn't have the technology and the surgery that we have and the medications. False teaching leaks in because there's a sensual element to it, is what Peter's saying, which is kind of an interesting way of looking at false teaching. Why does it seduce people in? Uh, one of uh, Cindy's and my family members was involved in one of these big cults years ago where they had the mass marriages. And free sex was kind of a worship thing in this cult. It's an easy attraction. John Lilly writes, No doctrine, however senseless and monstrous, that appeals to the sensual appetites of man will ever lack followers. If I can appeal to the sensual side of you, your appetite, and promise you something, I'll, I'll follow that. Success is the way of truth will be maligned. If false teaching succeeds, it pulls on people's sensuality. If false teaching succeeds, succeeds excuse me, uh, Peter says, the truth will be maligned. It's an idiomatic expression from our Old Testament. Maligned is the word blasphema, blaspheme, blaspheme in English. The truth will be defamed. False teaching will succeed as it, the black mold takes root in the believer's life and the church life. Peter was clear in the first letter he wrote about this. Look at two verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We're not supposed to go out and fight and hate and be intolerant and unkind and, and judgmental and bigoted and fill in the blank. Peter said it pretty clear. Keep your behavior excellent. Be a good person. Treat your husband and wife well. Treat your kids well. Be kind to your neighbor. This isn't deep theology. This is common sense 101. 1 Peter 3.16, keep a good conscience. So that in the thing in which you are slandered, he does not say keeping good behavior is going to prevent you from being slandered. Contraire. But you have a good conscience. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Again, one of my axioms, do the right thing in the right way and go home. If you're a leader, if you run a business, if you're trying to shepherd little kiddos, if you're homeschooling, if you're in the art industry, do the right thing the right way and go home. It's so important to keep those things in mind. I want to do the right thing the way Christ went, the right way. You might add sometimes the right time and then go home because you're never going <laughs> to finish. It's never done. Tomorrow, a new. You know your email will be just as full tomorrow as it is today. Your text messages will come in tomorrow if you ignore them today. I can promise you that. I'll text you again. And people who I don't even know text me all the time. Who is it? Don't you like that when you get it? I don't know who they are. 
I go, Cindy, will you look in your outlook? And we, I just, I'm sorry, I don't have you in my contacts, question mark. And then I hurt their feelings, right? Right thing, right way, go home. I can't fix it all. But I can be kind. I can ha have a clear conscience. Well, the third thing Peter observes here, the false teachers will succeed in greed. Greed will be exploited. I love the King's English here in 2 Peter 2, 3. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Isn't that great? They'll make merchandise. They'll turn you into merchandise. Greed and covetousness is insatiable. It's always used in a negative sin and almost always used as sin, in a negative sense, and almost always used as, as sin in the Bible. Um, we have a nomenclature in our language today called addiction. We understand addiction to substances, alcohol, uh, prescription medication, all kinds of substances, illegal and legal uh, narcotics that are available. And we move that addiction into gambling, into pornography, and fill in the blank, <clears throat> all kinds of addictions. And um, I, I don't think it's wrong to use that language, but language then moves the, the um, let's say, the, the problem. It's not that I choose to continue an insatiable lifestyle, it's that I have an addiction. And addiction then becomes a disease. And when it's a disease, it's not covered by medical insurance. That's how our culture works. <clears throat> um, I don't mean too indelicate, but um, some of us as we get older have this skin that comes down here. <clears throat> uh, it's called a bat wing disorder. Bat wing disorder. The last word's important because it's a disorder insurance has to cover it. So culture changes, meaning changes, words change. And when that meaning changes, all of a sudden addiction, well, it's not my problem. I don't, again, I have great respect for recovery programs. We have people in our family systems that are very involved in all this. I'm not anti it. I just think it's interesting. Because sin is insatiable, just like alcoholism or pornography or whatever you're gambling is insatiable. I've used this illustration to where you're tired of hearing it. If sin satiated, you'd have one affair and never do it again. If gambling satiated, you'd make money and go home, or lose money and go home. If sin could ever satisfy, we wouldn't continue sinning. Addiction nomenclature just sort of sanitizes that, and at some level takes the blame off the individual. Those who work a treatment program understand, I can't do this by myself, right? Higher power, whatever you want to call it, and you can, you can criticize that all day long, but the acknowledgement's important, I can't do this by myself. And that's right. You can't fix the sin condition by yourself either. So these insatiable things, greed and covetousness, this is all under the umbrella of false teaching. Which, by the way, um, I know churches that are very supportive of 12-step programs and those that are like 12-step programs are heresy. And I understand why. I truly understand. On the one hand, you want to help people. On the other hand, if you parse it down carefully, yeah, that's a, that's a choice. And you get a choice to have treatment. You get a choice to put an accountability system. You get a choice to get help. Well, those are called 12-step programs. And so the you know, churches, you're a heretic because you have a 12-step program. You're non-Christians because you don't. And all the while, the church is stuck because we're looking for black mold. Peter continues that 
This greed is a form of wealth, of gain. It's false. It's a fun word in the, in the New Testament. It's the word plastos, plastos. It becomes the word plastic in English. And plastic is fake. Remember when plastic was fake? It was cheap. It was made in China were like three words of you know, doom. If, oh, made in China, throw it away. Of course, China has made really good plastic recently. And we all love plastic now. Merchandising market. Languaging, language is taking over the church, and that's why I like the King's English, feigned words which make merchandise of you. Well, false teachers, old and nothing new, false teaching, popular as ever. And third and last, false teachers, their time will come. The judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter depicts judgment in a parallelism. Those of you who study the Psalms, you precept BSF community Bible study folks, you know these things already, but it's always, I, I love looking at parallels like this. For the, the mind, the way our mind works, repetition is one thing, restatement is more powerful. If we say it, the same thing in just a little different way. And so what Peter is doing here, the judgment parallels, uh, not, from not long ago, their destruction. Judgment parallels destruction, not idle Parallels, not asleep. The parallel is making the point. <clears throat> it seems like God's off duty here. It seems like God's not doing anything. God is not negligent. God is not capricious. I mentioned capricious means he's not evil. He's not, I can't wait to send those sinners to hell. That's not who God is. He's a loving God, wishing none to perish. He's not negligent. He's not capricious. How often do you hear people say, and maybe you said it, I could never believe in a God who, fill in the blank. You hear this so often. I talk to people about their faith, their belief, their knowledge in Christ. Uh, well, I could never believe in a God who lets children die. I could never believe in a God who lets AIDS ravage uh, Africa. I could never believe in a God who, fill in the blank. And on the one hand, to be loving and kind and appreciative of where they are, you, you want to listen to that. On the other hand, that's heresy. That's my opinion about God. I've created God in my image. The moment I say, I could never believe in a God who, stop. You just said, I've created my own idea of God. I could believe in a God who didn't allow war, didn't allow AIDS, didn't allow suffering, didn't allow children to be separated from their families. Fill in the blank. You know what? You could never come up with enough exceptions to say, okay, I believe in that God. Because eventually there'd be one thing, well, I couldn't believe in a God who. The Jews understood this better than any with a monotheistic lens because they knew there was one God, not many. And the greatest illustration of that was Egypt and Israel. Israel was in captivity in Egypt with some 8,000 different gods that had been chronicled. And the idols just fell off them as they walked around Egypt. So why does God get them out of Egypt? He gets the idolatry out of them and gets them out of idolatry. And the first thing they do is make a gold calf. Oy. Well, I'll learn you that lesson. Now, pretty interesting. Jews, whether Reformed, Orthodox, somewhere in between, idolatry isn't a big problem in Judaism. They did learn that lesson along, along a lot of others that we can benefit from. Well, God is not asleep. I'm going to go and jump to two lessons. Let's go to the end here. Two lessons as we kind of wind this text up. Number one, black mold is everywhere, so you got to be discerning. These aren't any, any rocket theology 
points here. This is just something for you to think about. Be discerning. When it comes to the Word of God, listen to the messenger carefully. Uh, the man, the woman, the podcast, the person you read, the, the Bible study, the commentary, uh, someone you're talking to work goes to a church that maybe is different than your thinking. Be discerning. Um, you should be able to, when I'm teaching, when anybody's teaching, you should be able to say, hey, I, I can see in those verses where he or she's getting that. This is baseline 101 theology. You ought to be able to see that in the Bible. That's what it says there. If you have a seventh grade reading education level in America, almost all Bibles were written with that in mind. The ESV, the New America Standard, and the King's English are called a 12th grade equivalency. Meaning, if you went through 12 years of American education, you should be able to read this language. Unfortunately, other Bibles, or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint, have dumbed down the grammar and the syntax to make it easier for people to read, which is why the NIV remains one of the most popular readable Bibles in the United States, because it was written for a seventh grade level educated person. That's why certain books are written in a different form, or academic. Well, those guys are boring and dry. Granted, but they're smart. An easy book is easier to read. A paper trade book's easier to read. Language is important. Be discerning. Something that I stumbled across years ago, and I, it wasn't original with me, is if you hear a new teaching, something novel, a yellow flag ought to go off. If it's new and novel, why hasn't someone else thought about this? And that's why biblical theology comes into play. Because you could take a verse or passage out of context and create all kinds of cults. In fact, that's why most cults exist. Because they take something out of context and they build a whole premise on a passage ripped out of context. We could start a church of, milk, of meat with no milk. We could. We could take one passage out of the old Levitical code that you weren't to uh, boil a kid in its mother's milk. I have Jewish friends, if you bring up this subject... A friend of mine said she would get nauseated. She would feel nauseous if someone talked about a chicken fried steak. Obviously, they weren't a southerner. But, uh, but if you talk about it, because that was the meat cooked in the milk that was to nourish that child, so to speak. What was God teaching in the Levitical Code set aside? If we take that out of context, we could have a church of milk and no meat. Think about the logos. Think about the merchandising we could have. We could have T-shirts and swag. We could knock it out of the park. We have meat with no milk. You can create anything. That's why biblical theology is important. Do your homework. What was the Levitical law saying? What was it teaching the men and women of the time when Moses and the Aaronic priesthood were put in place? How does that now apply today? Come fast forward, Peter. I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never touched take, kill, and eat. Take, kill. You know the story? The sheet drops down, take, kill, and eat. Take, kill, and eat. Never, never touch this stuff from my childhood, Lord. The voice says, what God has considered cleansed, you no longer consider unclean. It wasn't about a dietary lifestyle that was organic or before its time. It was about, do you understand that I make laws for your benefit? And I'm trying to teach you the difference between clean and unclean. But if I fulfill the law... What was once unclean under the law, I've now made clean. So have your shrimp if you want. Have some bacon if you want. We spent a lot of time in Israel on leading tours over there. And I have a dear, dear Jewish brother over there, a friend over there. He's, he's a 
Some of you have met him. He's a snarky New Yorker, uh, Vietnam War guy, Ronnie Cohen. And uh, Ronnie was telling me they actually are making a shrimp and bacon product now that's not made out of shrimp or bacon but looks and tastes like it. <laughs> no one but the Jews. They're so creative. you got to love it. It sure tastes good, but we can't have it. Let's make something taste like it. Be discerning. False teachers tend to set themselves apart from other people. They tend to elevate themselves. Um, some of us remember the 80s and the televangelist scandals and one of these prominent leaders uh, crying in anger from his pulpit saying, touch not thine anointed. Wow. When leaders put themselves apart, when they're untouchable, when they're unapproachable, when they have no accountability system. Uh, secondly, and lastly, again, nothing rocket theology here. Be humble. Because we have false teachers that subtly deny Christ, because we have false teachers that are going after the sensual side, um, our, our, our dear, dear friend who started out teaching the book of Levit Leviticus, Rob Bell, started a church in Michigan teaching the book of Leviticus. It blew the whole place apart. The most legalistic culture that he could start a church, and thousands coming to hear him teach Leviticus. And over the time, he started changing a little bit, shifting a little bit, his elders came to him and said, we don't hear you talk about sin anymore. We don't hear you talking about the gospel anymore. You know, we don't understand this. I mean, God's done an amazing thing here with, through, in you, but we don't hear you doing this anymore. And now the poor guy is so far off from the reservation, nobody knows what he, I don't think he knows what he believes anymore. A little humility would have gone a long way. I've had elders over the years approach me and say, Michael, you're, you're really kind of flippant. No, I'm not. See? You, know, you can tone it down a little bit. Do they mean that for evil or good? They mean it for good. Sometimes you got to have, if you don't have people to tell you the truth, you're in a problem. Lastly, I just along this being humble, and this is an area I don't think any of us are exempt from. Is Christ, do I view him as my master and I his servant? Because this, to me, is where we get it upside down. False teaching is the black mold that's ever present. And as long as I understand he's the master and I'm not, I don't always understand everything in this book. Nobody can. I'm sorry. You spend a lifetime. You're not going to get it off. That's the beautiful thing about it. Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the scriptures. It widens and deepens with our ears. Uh, but he's the master. I'm not. When I'm the master... When I'm right, when my opinion, my heresy is right, now the black mold's on the walls, and we're calling the remediation company. And the best they can do is scrub off the surface. They can't remove it all, because it's always going to be there. Be humble, be gentle in your approach. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.